Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. This legacy uh, of, of slavery and lynching and segregation, our history of racial injustice. In interviewing all of these migrant workers, nobody talked about their experiences and the kind of extreme victimizing language that the policy required. As I got to college and I started studying history, I was really interested in sort of figuring out or learning more about Jamaican history and couldn't really figure out how to access Jamaican history. And I had a really growing investment in the lives of women working workers who had left sex work to become jewelry makers. Slavery and its Legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. Hello again, this is Thomas Thurston, and today I'm talking with Tammy Ingram, who is the uh, Modern Slavery Visiting Fellow for this year. She's here for the entire year. It's been great having Tammy around. She was uh, a graduate student here at Yale, graduated, got her PhD in 2007, and uh, has been uh, at the College of Charleston uh, since 2010. Uh, Her first book, uh, Dixie Highway, Road Building and the Making of the Modern South, was published in 2014. And Today we're going to be talking about her new project, which is titled The Wickedest City in America, Sex, Race, and Organized Crime in the Jim Crow South. Tammy, it's great to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Uh, so so let's jump right in. Uh, uh, exactly where is the wickedest city in, in, the, in America, or was it at this time? Uh, the, well, the, the wickedest city is Phoenix City, Alabama, which was um, or is a small town in southeastern Alabama. And between the uh, late 19th century and the um, middle of the 20th century, it was also the headquarters for a very um, large and sophisticated organized crime syndicate. So, and how did you how did you uh, get interested in this topic? How did you stumble across this story? Yeah, well, it, it seems a little um, uh, out of sync with my first book, which was about transportation politics uh, in the Progressive Era South. Um, but uh, uh, but it's actually linked to that because, um, as many people probably know, a key feature of um, Progressive Era transportation reform, Jim Crow era reform in the South was forced labor, chain gang labor. And so in the course of writing about the politics of, um, of convict labor and of learning more and more about how the criminalization of uh, African Americans was central to building the South's modern transportation system, I became more interested in, um, in the history of crime and punishment in that same period uh, in the South. And um, uh, as I was finishing up that book, I was actually teaching a course on film and um, Southern history. And because I was interested in this and thinking about crime and punishment, I really wanted to find a a good film about crime in the South. And I had a hard time finding something, but I stumbled across a film called The Phoenix City Story. And it got my attention for uh, a couple of reasons. One was... um, No one had ever heard of Phoenix City, uh, I thought, but uh, I knew exactly where it was Hmm. because I grew up uh, just about two hours south of there in southwest Georgia. So I thought, well, is that could that be the same town that I, I know about? So um, so I picked it up just for that reason, but um, I think that I probably would have dismissed it um, out of hand as a you know, story that wasn't true or maybe not that interesting um, if, it, if the film hadn't opened with newsreel footage uh, 
about the real story that this this somewhat bad B-movie uh, was actually based on. So the minute I realized it was based on a true story and that this had happened close to where I grew up and I'd never heard anything about it, I was sort of hooked and started digging to find out more. So this was a, 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 a movie that was ripped from the headlines uh, in, in the... Uh, 1950s? So yes. The, that, the yeah. murder it was based on happened in 1954. The film came out within a year of the murder. So um, why don't you begin by setting up this, this murder? Because that's kind of where you begin in your own research. And then, and then kind of contextualize that, bring it back, talk about how, you know, the other kind of threads to this story that you've uncovered. Yeah, well, the the murder um, happened in June of 1954, um, and the, the person who was assassinated was uh, Albert Patterson. He was a local attorney in Phoenix City. He had a reputation for being a uh, kind of law and order politician, and he was um, he had just won the Democratic primary to become the new attorney general for the state of Alabama. And of course, in those days, that was tantamount to winning the general election. Sure. Uh, so, so he was going to become the new attorney general, and he had made it very clear that he was going to clean up uh, Phoenix City as part of his his um, his work as attorney general. And as long as he was just a crime-finding attorney in Phoenix City, he wasn't much of a threat to them. But obviously now, um, with the power uh, that he would have um, uh, uh, as attorney general, uh, the mob the mob was really frightened and worried about what he was he was going to do, um, and so um, he was essentially killed because of that. Assassinated outside of his law office one night, just a couple of weeks after uh, after the primary election. Um, so that's that's really the story that I started with. That's sure. the one that everybody anybody who knows anything about organized crime in Phoenix City knows that story. Um, and the the film that I mentioned earlier is is based on is really about the murder itself, uh, but. As I started doing research, I realized that that's really the end of my story because the um, the investigation into his murder really outed the mob for the first time and, and led to a, a, a cleanup. And, and the mob was um, was run out of Phoenix City in the aftermath of the, the Patterson murder investigation. Uh, and the two people uh, responsible, well, two of the three people who were responsible for the murder um, were um, were charged and, um, and tried for murder. Uh, only one of them went to prison. So as I, I actually started doing my research there and have been working backwards from there. And what I've really discovered is that um, Phoenix City had a reputation for lawlessness, and Russell County, where it's located, had a reputation for, right. for lawlessness, dating back really to the early 19th century. But it was really in the late 19th century that, that uh, syndicates started to get a, a foothold there. And in the early years, even into the 19, very early um, 19-teens, it was really just a, a kind of a group of bootleggers and a few gambling operations that were going on there. Nothing too, too extensive. They ran the town, but they didn't really have very much influence beyond the city. But by the 1930s, uh, the mob had become very powerful there, very sophisticated. They had branched out from just bootlegging operations and gambling operations and were running extensive prostitution networks. Uh, they had an extensive sa- – there was a safe-cracking school wow. um, to train uh, burglars and safe-crackers in, um, in Phoenix City. Um, and as I discovered the into the 1930s and 40s, they began to get involved in much – darker and uh, more extensive operations, um, including, uh, I mentioned prostitution, but they actually developed a a multi-state prostitution ring that involved as many as a thousand women, we believe. There was also a black market adoption ring going on. Right. That's absolutely fascinating, Mm -hmm. the adoption, well, both Mm -hmm. of those. 
Now, so that I tend to think of uh, um, uh, like the mob as being part of a uh, a big city or a northern uh, type phenomenon. Are these uh, are these uh, outsiders from Montgomery or Birmingham, or are they local uh, local uh, criminals that kind of syndicate? How does how does this uh, group kind of uh, come together and how much a part of uh, what Phoenix is, I assume, at the time, even though it's Phoenix City, is not a very mm-hmm. populous place. It's- right. No, it's a, it's a fairly small town, maybe a little bigger than you might guess. And by the 1950s, it had about 20,000 people, but that's mostly because it's just across the river from Columbus, Georgia, which was a big mill town. So mm-hmm. it sort of functioned as a bedroom community uh, for Columbus, but was still a, a pretty small town. Uh, but that, that's a good question. This is actually part of what distinguishes Phoenix City, the mob in Phoenix City from organized crime syndicates that we're more familiar with in places like Philadelphia or New York. Um, these are uh, the mob in Phoenix City was pretty much homegrown. Uh, there's no sort of ethnic tradition. There's no. The, it's not. It's it really nothing like um, uh, the the urban gangsters that we're most familiar with. Um, most of the men and women who were involved in the Phoenix City mob grew up there or in towns very close to Phoenix City. Some of them had. Um, uh, gotten into various uh, criminal syndicates outside Phoenix City and then came back there um, and established, uh, you know, their own lotteries or their own gambling houses or prostitution networks. Um, But most of them sort of got into uh, criminal activity um, growing up there. It had always been around. So um, so many of them sort of cut their teeth on it quite young. And and the handful of people who uh, ran the mob by the 1950s were, were all from Phoenix City. And and very integrated in in the community. It's yes. uh, uh, I don't want to give away uh, too much, but the uh, the 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 assassin was a right. sheriff or the deputy sheriff. Right. Yes. No. All of them were very well integrated into to the community. They were you know they, they went they were sitting on the pews next to you know the the sort of crime fighting attorney at church on Sundays. Their children went to school um, with the children of you know just ordinary law-abiding citizens. And as you just mentioned, um, and this is really key to understanding the mob in Phoenix City and how they maintained their power, they really ran the city government. Uh, there were the gangsters, the people who, who owned the gambling operations and the bars and the saloons and the, the brothels. Um, but the people who really enabled them, the people who were cooperating with them, were people like the deputy sheriff and, and the sheriff himself, too, um, the, the chief of police, the, um, the circuit solicitors or the district attorney. All of these people were, the, were powerful mob operatives. Um, so the circuit solicitor, for instance, was also one of the people who was charged with the murder of Albert Patterson. Um, you know, his job was to convene grand juries and bring charges against people and, of course, he was in their pocket, so not surprisingly, um, they were never brought up. His grand juries almost never returned indictments. Uh, the sheriff would, or deputy sheriff, who was also involved with the mob, uh, might occasionally arrest someone for illegal activity just to satiate the public if they were starting to worry about the, you know, how extensive these operations were getting. Um, that person would be promptly bailed out. He would say, this is the end of it. Uh, there's no, uh, you know, no more trouble is gonna gonna come from these people, and uh, and they would move right along. But but yes, the the two people who actually were, we believe anyway, were um, were present the night that Albert Patterson were, were was murdered and and were were uh, that 
we think killed him, uh, were the deputy sheriff who uh, was convicted of pulling the trigger and the circuit solicitor who was uh, charged with murder but um, was not convicted. And the third person was actually the sitting attorney general, the outgoing attorney general of Alabama. My God. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so not only did they, they, they run the, the county and they ran the city, uh, by the 1950s, uh, the, the mob in Phoenix City had, had statewide connections. And yeah, absolutely. Pretty firm control over, over the state house in Montgomery. Uh, now, of course, the heights of their, uh, of this criminal, the height of this criminal syndicate is occurring uh, during the, the height of the Jim Crow South uh, through the uh, you know, early part of the, the first half of the 20th century. What is it? Is there a connection that you can make between uh, Jim Crow and uh, the segregated South and, uh, and, and this kind of tight local uh, uh, criminal syndicate? Yes. What, one of the things that interests me most about this story is that uh, the you know, the very same time in the early 20th century that white supremacists are criminalizing all African-Americans, um, white crime is sort of, you know, uh, uh, expanding. Um, and it's kind of been erased, I think, from the history of, of the Jim Crow South, it, it, with the exception of um, you know, a scholarly focus on uh, extra-legal violence of the Klan or maybe the extra-legal violence of, of segregationists in the 1950s, we really don't think much about, uh, about white crime. But um, I really think that the, the same sort of um, uh, reverence for local control and for states' rights that was um, so of paramount importance to white supremacists and defenders of Jim Crow segregation in the early part of the 20th century also protected white crime. So, uh, so from any sort of outside scrutiny, and that was very important to the maintenance, the, the the mob's ability to maintain control locally and at the state level to make sure that there was no sort of outside interference. That you know the FBI field office in Montgomery was right. not coming in and investigating them. And as far as I've been able to tell, I'm still looking for 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 more evidence of this, but um, there's really um, appears to have been no serious effort by outside authorities um, uh, or federal authorities to come in uh, and investigate, even though they were operating pretty much out in the open. No one was hiding this exactly, um, but the mob and their local political and state political operatives really couldn't afford for there to be any kind of outside scrutiny. And this was very convenient, again, because um, obviously Jim Crow governments were not very keen on outside scrutiny either. Jim Crow was a very fragile system sure. that absolutely depended upon uh, everybody sort of closing ranks and, and insulating uh, local and state Jim Crow regimes from any sort of outside scrutiny or criticism. And this era that the, uh, that the assassination takes place is when, is it the Kefauver Commission? Kefauver. Kefauver <laughs> Commission is 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 uh, is is investigating organized crime throughout the North, uh, and I I know this because you've mentioned it in in other talks. But uh, what is that that commission's relationship w with what's happening here and throughout the South? Are they just refusing to investigate, or 
You know, why is the focus not on uh, places like uh, Phoenix City? Yes, the the Kefauver Commission, the the, the Senate Special um, uh, Subcommittee to Investigate uh, Organized Crime and Interstate Commerce, I think, if I've gotten that right, is the the, the full title of it, um, named after uh, the chairman of that commission, uh, Senator Estes Kefauver from from Tennessee. They were conducting hearings in the early 1950s into organized crime, um, just a few years before the Patterson murder, and. Uh, the Kefauver Committee um, conducted investigations in just over a dozen major cities throughout the United States, none of them in the Deep South except for New Orleans, which was no surprise to anyone right. that there there was, was criminal activity, organized crime activity maybe going on there. Um, but I looked into this and was curious about why um, – why the Key Fiber Committee didn't pay closer attention to smaller towns and cities and why they didn't pay closer attention to what was going on in the Deep South because, again, it was operating pretty much out in the open. And what I discovered is that um, there were thousands and thousands of letters and telegrams and uh, and memos and, and people writing to the Key Fiber Commission in 1950, 1951 saying, uh, come to Alabama. A lot of them specifically from Phoenix City or places around Phoenix really? City saying, there's a mob here. You have to come here and investigate. And Kefauver and his uh, associates would always write back and say, yes, we're aware of this, uh, but we have limited time and resources, and we're really only interested in investigating organized crime in places where it's a real problem. And hmm. so it's not that they didn't know about it. Uh, they certainly did know about it. And in fact, Albert Patterson, who was assassinated in 1954, was a, was a friend of Estes Kefauver. They communicated, and, and he had relayed to Kefauver himself that this was a serious problem. And they had talked about strategies for fighting organized crime in Phoenix City. So he, it's not that they didn't know about it, um, but they certainly minimized it and seemed to uh, think that it wasn't as serious a problem uh, as it really was, and instead focused their attention on better-known syndicates in places like Chicago and New York and Los Angeles. And kind of, it sounds like, bowed to a kind of states' rights uh, uh, rhetoric that uh, is also preventing any uh, real investigation of, of Jim Crow and, and yes. things like that. Yes, absolutely. Just the state minimized it. You know, southern state governments and local officials certainly minimized it or, or denied it, uh, you know, altogether. And they seem to have, have bought into that. But again, if you go uh, to the National Archives and look in the Kefauver Committee correspondence, you will find folder upon folder upon folder of, um, uh, you know, communications and correspondence from people in the South saying you have to come here. And not just in Alabama. There's a lot from Phoenix City. There's a mm -hmm. lot from people in Alabama about Phoenix City. But what you realize is that all over the country, really, um, and, and definitely throughout the South, in smaller towns and cities, there were corrupted local officials and smaller syndicates running all kinds of illegal operations. And the Kefauver Committee um, didn't not only didn't go investigate there, but didn't really acknowledge this in their final report on organized crime. And it's funny because that report in some ways uh, uh, creates uh, in the popular imagination the whole idea of what organized crime is. And, and so in some right. ways they're really cherry picking a kind of the, the kind of uh, what becomes a popular impression of organized crime and, and, and missing or, or, right. or soft peddling this, uh, this other story that's throughout 
these small towns in the south and elsewhere, mm-hmm. I assume. Right. No, absolutely. And the, and the fam- you know, the, most people probably know this, but the, the hearings that they conducted, <clears throat> excuse me, in places like New York, they're calling in gangsters that everybody knew were gangsters, right? They're right. calling in these sort of uh, pseudo-celebrities. And, and if anything, the hearings, uh, while they certainly um, uh, provided, you know, more proof that organized crime really really was a problem and that, that these syndicates really did exist, uh, that these weren't just myths, they also kind of um, contributed to the sort of mythology and the, the celebration of some of these reputed, uh, you know, gangsters. And so, so these people kind of became... Um, you know, even more sort of folk heroes than they than they already were. There are great stories about, um, you know, the um, it, it, in the afternoons after the uh, the hearings were conducted, some movie houses would would show the newsreel footage, and and people were pouring into theaters to to watch this footage to see these people in the flesh, these famous gangsters that they'd only ever you know read about in crime novels and uh, and sort of true crime magazines. So there are great stories about, um, you know, uh, how housewives in New York who would push the ba- their baby carriages, take their kids for walks and push the baby carriages into a darkened theater uh, for an hour or two so they could, could entertain themselves with, um, with this fascinating uh, footage. But, but yeah, certainly, uh, you know, as, as much as there was, there was truth to the existence of those syndicates and those, those were real people doing real things in those cities, it certainly um, created to uh, or contributed to the creation of a stereotype about what a gangster really looked like when when the real ones were probably a lot more like the people operating in smaller towns and, and cities in places like Phoenix City. Now, 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 Phoenix City, as you're saying, around this time is is a relatively s- small town, uh, uh, twenty thousand people. Uh, yet, it seems to be supporting uh, a criminal network that, as far as its reach, goes far beyond uh, Phoenix City. And as you say, um, uh, it it has this. Uh, uh, a prostitution ring that numbers you know hundreds and hundreds mm-hmm. of, of women and and uh, um, as well as as well as the uh, adoption uh, agency could you mm-hmm. say a little about what their uh, what their reach you know what is mm-hmm. their business plan I mean they're obviously mm-hmm. uh, not relying on on strictly on local uh, vice to uh, to uh, kind of establish themselves Right, no, not not at all. And when I when I say that there's a syndicate, I don't mean to imply that there's just a, a single sort of faction. Uh, as a small group of of um, of uh, people involved in the mob in Phoenix City, um, but who were sort of the ringleaders. But um, they tended to pair off. There were two or three or four people who kind of worked together in one little little group, and and another couple of people. And there were a whole lot of people who were just sort of uh, running their own operations individually. But the main uh, figures, the sort of key figures, did have um, operations that extended far beyond the boundaries of Russell County and Phoenix City and beyond the boundaries of, of uh, even the sort of Alabama-Georgia line where, where they were located. The prostitution ring, um, as I said, was a pretty extensive network that uh, inv- federal investigators later determined to involve maybe as many as a thousand women. And they were moving women around on a circuit um, up and down the East Coast, mostly. So um, uh, there were reports of them moving women through places like uh, Miami, Jacksonville, Savannah. There may have been connections to prostitution uh, rackets in New Orleans, um, but mostly sort of throughout the, the Southeast. 
Uh, the adoption ring is a little bit different in that the mob was not directly involved in the, the adoption ring. It was actually run by a local doctor and his wife. Their daughter happened to be married to one of the mobsters. Hmm. Uh, she, she divorced him around this time in the early 1950s. Um, one of the other sort of major kingpins in Phoenix City um, uh, adopted a child through this ring. So it, there, there's, a, there's a connection there, but the mob isn't directly running it. However, that operation uh, appears to have had a national reach. And one of the things that I've learned in uh, investigating that and trying to learn more about how it worked is that it was not the only one that was operating in the Southeast, in part because state adoption laws in that time, especially in the South, were so vague and and so sort of easy to uh, m- interpret uh, however you wanted to. It was really, really different to uh, difficult to prosecute someone for arranging an illegal adoption. It was not uncommon at all for people to kind of come up with these informal arrangements that had no sort of legal basis, maybe within the family or groups of family right. friends. Right. So that really aided people who were looking to exploit those laws um, for profit and for gain. So in addition to the one that was operating in Phoenix City, um, there was a, one also operating in Augusta, Georgia, that like the adoption ring in Phoenix City had uh, a national reach. They were adopting children out to childless couples as far away as California. Um, so in that sense, some of these individual operations absolutely had a regional or national reach. Others um, were entirely local in scope, except that they were getting business from outside the state. Um, Phoenix City was kind of a well-known you know, smaller gambling operation. A lot of uh, gam- big-time gamblers who were on their way to spend the winter season in Miami uh, in the casinos there would would stop off and, as they said, warm up huh. in Phoenix City um, before they moved on to, to the, the fancier casinos in, in Miami Beach. Now, it seems that doing research for a topic like this has its challenges. You're uh, dealing with people who are doing everything they can to keep their activities uh, secret. And then you also are, uh, are looking at, at police records and FBI records and that sort of thing, which are often difficult to get a hold of, redacted, uh, that sort of thing. Could you say a little about uh, your sources and, 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 and where you're beyond the kind of newspapers uh, that are reporting during the time, where you're kind of digging uh, mm-hmm out this story. Yeah, well, you're right. It's, um, it's a very challenging topic to, um, to do research on. And um, the place I started um, is, again, with the Patterson murder in 1954, simply because there is an investigative file on this. When Patterson was murdered, the, na- the governor declared martial law, brought in the National Guard, um, and uh, replaced the, everyone in the, the attorney general's office with people who could actually run a legitimate operation. In fact, um, Patterson's son, John Patterson, ended up running for his seat, his father's um, seat as attorney general, and he actually ended up overseeing the, the, the investigation uh, and the, um, the trials of the two people who were um, uh, uh, charged with the murder of his father. Wow. So, um, so there are a lot of files on the murder itself. Um, and 
so that's the place that I really started. And that's where I was able to uh, collect a lot of names, a lot of information on specifically where some of these um, uh, illegal operations were located in Phoenix City. And I used those then to go back to Phoenix City and start to do some research there. So um, I'm now looking through uh, local court records. I'm hoping to get um, my hands on um, some local arrest records to try to sort of track or demonstrate that that uh, a lot of these mobsters never really uh, faced any sort of consequences whatsoever for for what they were they were doing. Um, I've started conducting some oral histories, but um, as you might imagine, sure. uh, and this is really interesting. I, I I've mentioned this elsewhere, but the. Um, after the Patterson murder um, and the mob, the mob was shut down in Phoenix City, but no one left. They all stayed there. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though their operations were shut down, they were from Phoenix City. Their families were there. Their kids were in school there. Everybody stayed there. And a lot of their relatives are still in Phoenix City. Um, and now the grandchildren uh, and great-grandchildren of the people involved in this story. I haven't gotten any of them to agree to speak to me yet, but I'm certainly hoping um, that I'll, I'll be able to. But, but the challenge here really is sort of integrating those, finding some of those, those difficult um, uh, materials. Uh, local records especially are really difficult to get, get my hands on. And trying to integrate those with things like the Kefauver um, uh, correspondence and, uh, and things like that 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 are testaments to just how extensive this operation was and how many people knew about it. Um, it was it was no big secret. They certainly didn't want any outside interference or scrutiny, but they weren't doing much to hide it either. It You know, in some ways, again, getting back to the Jim Crow South, it's not too different uh, from uh, public lynchings and that mm-hmm. sort of, uh, that right. there's this sense that everyone kind of knows what's going on and who's doing what, uh, but there's this code of silence that... uh, Well, you can do it as long as you can get away with it. Right. So, you know, you can you can lynch someone in broad daylight and, you know, create a picture postcard, as they did in those days, and, and circulate it and send it through the U.S. mails. And and it's, you know, extraordinary to us today to think about that. But, but you know, they were able to get away with all kinds of things because local law enforcement officials refused to arrest them. Uh, local uh, courts refused to convict them. Grand juries would not you know, return any, any indictments against them. And even if, um, you know, concern or scrutiny reached beyond local, uh, you know, uh, the local jurisdiction, um, in the case of Phoenix City anyway, the mob had enough control at the state level, especially over the attorney general's office. That was especially important to them. Um, but, you know, they were often very friendly with governors in Alabama and uh, with other state officials. And so it was very difficult to get anyone who was in a position of authority who could have done something to crack down on them to actually act because they were all complicit in some way. Right. And it, and and that, too, uh, the legacy of slavery seems to fit in with that when mm-hmm. uh, when you've kind of made peace with uh, looking at humans as property, uh, mm-hmm. then to uh, to be running a, a, a prostitution ring that involves hundreds and hundreds of women mm-hmm. isn't too far a leap. Right. No. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the sort of trade in human flesh in the South certainly, um, you know, did not end with the abolition of slavery, um, and and not only as you said with the, you know, the sort of uh, exchange and, and, and sale of women's bodies, uh, and sometimes underage women 
um, right. too. They weren't all um, women of age. A lot of uh, young women were sort of forced into uh, um, uh, uh, sex work by their fathers, um, by their husbands sometimes, or other male you know, uh, guardians, and, and we know this from the uh, National Guard investigations following the, the Patterson murder. There were reports of um, uh, a number of these women uh, testified um, uh, about how they got it. So the testimonies the are still uh, in existence? You can... they are, uh, most of what I've found are, are reports of the testimonies. The okay. National Guard investigative, the report itself, I have not been able to put my hands on. But, um, but we do have a lot of accounts of that from journalists and, uh, and uh, correspondents referencing, um, uh, referencing that, uh, that testimony. So uh, that's where some of that information comes from. Um, but, you know, even with the, you know, the sort of you know, exchanging, you know, the Basically, selling you know babies, uh, profiting in some way from Absolutely. from these illegal adoptions is another example of that. And there's yet a third example that I don't know enough about yet to say much about. But one of the uh, the sort of major figures in in the mob in Phoenix City was a man named Head Rebel, Clarence Rebel. They called him Head Rebel, and he was also involved in a pretty um, extensive uh, immigrant smuggling operation, uh, not through Phoenix City, though he's from Phoenix City. He was running it through um, uh, Cuba, from uh, through Havana, uh, b- before the revolution, right. and, uh, and through Miami. And uh, we're talking earlier about sort of national connections here, you know, uh, the sort of reach of this mob. This was actually, um, he was working with a group out of Brooklyn, um, New York. So whether there were organized crime figures there or not, I don't know yet. Um, I'm actually just still sort of learning about this and figuring out what he was up to. But obviously, just at, at the heart of what they're doing here um, is still still profiting from from the sale of, of vulnerable bodies. And that's certainly something that has a long and sordid history in, in, in the South. Yeah, exactly. Well, I usually kind of finish things off uh, by by asking if uh, you have any uh, any further reading that you can uh, suggest, and I know that there are popular accounts of this, but uh, mm-hmm. they're old and uh, and suffer from the problems mm-hmm. that popular accounts have. And I mean, this is a bit of a problem. This, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in some ways, for all the reasons that you've talked about, mm-hmm. this story of of kind of a, 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 a criminal, the, the idea of a mob in in a s- small southern city in itself mm-hmm. just seems kind of strange. Uh, do you have mm-hmm. any, anything that you can say about Yeah, I mean, the, 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 it is a challenge. It's part of what makes this such an interesting um, thing to work on, too. There's, there isn't this huge body of secondary literature about you know, organized crime in the South. There's really not, nothing written about it um, very much at all. There are uh, a couple of books about, um, about Phoenix City. That they all focus on, uh, on the murder of Albert Patterson. Again, that's sure. the thing we know the most about. Um, my favorite one is actually a novel uh, by Ace Atkins called Wicked City, um, very close to the title of my book, uh, it, partly because Phoenix City had a, a journalist gave it two nicknames, either uh, the wickedest city in America was one of them, the direct quote. He amended that to Wicked, wicked City. And the other one was Sin City, USA, huh. um, which I also think we make a wonderful book title. Yeah, that's made but, for... Uh, but Ace Atkins book, it's really wonderful. It's a, it's a novel, but it is, is based on very rigorous um, uh, uh, research, archival research, and is, is fairly accurate. Um, and uh, and is really a great read. I also I really do recommend the film, the Phoenix City story. It is 
a terrible like it's a B movie. It's uh-huh. not a very sophisticated film. Um, it's uh, it's it's uh, kind of a low budget film. The director, I'm a big fan of his, Phil Carlson. He's famous for making uh, Kansas City Confidential, and was really interested in these kinds of true crime stories. But the film is 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 fascinating, um, both for the story that it tells, but also for the uh, the newsreel footage that that introduces the film. So if you get it from, buy a copy of it or get it from Netflix, it's the the introduction to it actually includes some interviews with some of the people who were involved in this case. And it's a, just a short introduction to the film, um, but it, it sort of makes the film. And I think it's probably some of the best. Uh, uh, and a couple of people he interviews actually uh, ended up writing uh, books about this too. There's a, um, I'll say one last uh, uh, book recommendation. Um, if you can find it, it's out of print. Um, there is a book by uh, uh, Edwin uh, uh, Strickland, um, who was one of the journalists who uh, wrote about this, right. uh, the murder of Patterson in 1954. Um, and uh, if you can track down a copy of that, it's very difficult to find. But, but that one's really interesting, too, and has been a, a great source of information for me. Well, Tammy, it's been great talking to you. And uh, I have to add that it's been great having you back in New Haven. Uh, for you. the year, and uh, and I look forward to seeing more of you and uh, reading the book. And uh, I'm sure Netflix will be scratching their heads, wondering mm-hmm. why the Phoenix City uh, mm-hmm. story is, is suddenly... <laughs> suddenly people are interested <laughs> in watching. Well, thank okay. you. It's been really wonderful to be back here this year, and nice talking to you today. Slavery and its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Production support is provided by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.